Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Carrie Shotwell, an occupational therapist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She has an extensive history working with kids and teenagers who experience hypermobility in their joints that affects their daily lives. She shares with us some tips and tricks for assessing and treating these kids, how to get buy-in from both the kids and their parents, and how we as therapists can support them on their lifetime journey of living with hypermobile joints. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Carrie. Hey, everyone. We have Carrie with us. And Carrie, I'm going to let you give us a brief introduction of yourself. You can kind of give us your full name and background and what area you're, you typically practice in and anything else you would like our listeners to know. Okay. Hi, thank you. My name is Carissa Shotwell, but I go by Carrie. And I am an occupational therapist. I work at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. I have been in pediatrics at Cincinnati Children's since I graduated from OT school. I've done a little bit of everything there over the course of the time that I've been there. And for the longest time, and most recently, I've worked in several of the upper extremity clinics there, including our rheumatology clinic. I've helped to cover several of the ortho and the plastics clinics, as well as the upper extremity CP clinic. I also work in the EB clinic currently as well. So our topic this evening is we're going to discuss hypermobility. So would you mind giving the listeners just what exactly is hypermobility? Hypermobility is exactly what it sounds like. It is when the joint has excessive motion or more motion than what the average joint has. And I personally have seen it a lot just over the course of time. But I've worked at Children's, working in our rheumatology clinic. When I first started covering there, we would occasionally have kids come to us that were there to rule out arthritis, and the doctors would rule it out and refer them to OT and to PT because their joints were actually hypermobile, and that was the reason for their swelling and for their symptoms that were similar to arthritis. So it was joint pain, just kind of a general bad feeling as well as swelling often. So it's funny that you speak of that because last week and I had talked with Kara about, I'm like, Hey, I just got somebody with hypermobility, but they don't dislocate and she's young, but older young. So she's like 17, but a lot of the complaints are pain. And even though she doesn't have hypermobility to the point that she dislocates, she has hypermobility. And I was like, okay, where do I even start? I treat adults. And yes, I have adults who are hypermobile, but where exactly do you start? That's a great question. And it has really evolved (laughs) over the years. Most recently, the thing that has been the most valuable to me is starting with the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure. So because it is such hypermobility, much of the time affects more than one specific area of the person's life. So when it's really bad, we'll get patients that come in and they'll tell me, I just want to stop hurting or I want to not hurt so bad. And 
I'll get them to expand on that. And then sometimes you really get caught going down a rabbit hole of all the different things that hurt and why nothing else has worked. <laughs> um, so I have learned to try to dodge the rabbit hole. And instead, <laughs> I start by saying, many of them have never been to OT before. So I start by telling them what OT is and the things that I can do to help them. And then I let them know how the evaluation is going to go, like what we're going to look at and what we're going to do. And then I say, I'll most likely give you some things to do at home and some exercises. So I want you to think about what your goals are for therapy, because I want to make sure that the exercises that I give you are going to be the things that are going to help you do the things that are most important for you to do. And we start there. And so then I'll kind of go into the COPM and and sometimes they do have to guide the goals. Not every person knows exactly what they want, but sometimes they do. And, when, and once we start talking about it, it really helps me to tailor their treatment plan according to what's most important to them. Carrie, how, how do you differentiate hypermobility, from, especially in kids, from just normal, like, loose joints in kids. I mean, kids are more hypermobile. I mean, as babies, we could all stick our foot in our mouth and Lord knows I could never do that now, (laughs) but how do you differentiate that from a more overarching hypermobile joints throughout the body or that might be more concerning? Yeah. I think that's a great question too. I frame it in terms of the same as any OT, really. Like, what are what are your functional limitations? What is stopping you from being able to do the activities that you'd like to do? And we do have a fair amount of kids that come in that whose maybe parents are hypermobile, and maybe there's a family history, and that family history is horrible. So the parents are trying to be as proactive as possible. And really, when I'm examining the child they don't really have any complaints of pain and they don't really have any functional limitations. And so in those sorts of situations, when there's not really a limitation, I will talk about joint protection and I will talk about things that they can do to set themselves up for success. And I will generally say, you have my number. Call me if things, if you start to have a problem with something, but I've learned in pediatrics that if I give a child some exercises that are not meaningful to them and aren't really doing anything to help them right now in the moment, they're most likely not going to do them. Even parents that have like the best intentions, like it's really hard for a child to understand someday you might be in pain. (laughs) So therefore you're going to do this exercise and just, you know, and, and kudos to the parents that are able to do that with their child, but there's a large majority of them that really, that even in teenagers, that thought of like what might happen just, you know, isn't enough to motivate somebody to do something outside their regular routine. So our focus in the younger child tends to be, there's a lot of younger kids that have pain with writing. And that is the one thing that I feel like I most often look at in a younger child. So if they're not really having a lot of complaints of pain and there's not really any functional limitations, 
through the course of the evaluation, I will, you know, just have them write something for me because I do feel like that is one area that you can make changes at a young age that really might impact them down the road. There's a lot of kids that come in middle school and teenage that have pain with writing and that is really hard to correct when you are in middle school or a teenager. So thankfully we have a lot of adaptations, but, but some kids like it. Some kids want to write. So. Yeah, we see quite a bit of that in our practice too. I don't see them art. I lean on my OT colleagues for that to help, but we do, we get a a fair number of kids that that are coming in with pain or difficulty with writing. And our therapists are saying they're hypermobile or they're picking up on some of those things that are affecting it. And you're right. More and more of my students have Chromebooks or tablets or whatever, but some of them do still have to write. And they're telling us that their teachers are getting onto them and it's painful. And we're trying to identify ways that we can help with that. Yeah. I tell them that like, it's a choice. There's not a lot, you know, it's very biomechanical. So it's kind of like a repetitive stress injury. And the reason that they're having pain, it's not because they're weak. And most of the time it's because of their, their hypermobile joints. They've held their pencil in a way that's (laughs) non-traditional, the rest of us. And over time it starts to hurt. And so the way to make that better is to correct that, which is not popular for a lot of people to hear. So are there any specific diagnoses that fall under that criteria of hypermobility that like a patient may come in or a child may come in with a specific diagnosis? So the most common one is, is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And there's been a lot in the, the social media, I guess, that for a long time, people really treated it as the same thing. So if you had hypermobility, then you had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and that's, it's really not the case. So the criteria for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome has become a little bit more strict and more, and maybe strict is a bad word, but they focus their criteria a little bit better so that they can diagnose it a little bit better. So there are several different, like even, so even within EDS, there are like different levels of that. You know, there's like a cardiovascular slash vascular type hypermobility in and of itself without any other coexisting symptoms was referred to as benign hypermobility. The new terminology is hypermobility spectrum disorders, and that can be people. So EDS is traditionally, you had to have a, a Biden score of greater than five. And for those of you that don't know what, what the Biden is, it is, and you can look it up on the EDS website. So it is hypermobility at specific joints. So if your elbows hyperextend past 20 degrees, and if your thumbs can touch the, your forearm, And if with your arm extended and your wrist extended, that you can bend your small finger back to a 90 degree angle. And then also you get a point each for the knees and you get a point each or a point if you can touch the floor with your knees extended with your palms on the floor. So 
a score of five or greater often was the criteria to have benign joint hypermobility. What they're finding is that there are people that maybe don't meet that specific joint criteria. There's a lot of people out there that have hypermobile shoulders and that have hypermobile PIP joints that are problematic. And as OTs, we really treat it the same. So I sometimes people come in to our clinic and they're almost disappointed that they didn't get a diagnosis. (laughs) And I really try to reframe it that even with the diagnosis, OT and PT would still be the treatment. So that hasn't changed. And my approach isn't going to change. We're still going to help with the same things that we would if you had the diagnosis. And really, it's, it's a good thing. You know, or it's that you don't have this more complex thing. And the way that you can treat this is through therapy and pain management techniques. So another common hypermobility or that has hypermobility as Marfan syndrome is like a classic one that there's a lot of people that are naturally hypermobile with that. So So you had mentioned often that referred to pain management. So what kind of interventions would they receive at pain management? So we do have a pain management clinic at Cincinnati Children's, but actually in terms of pain management, that's actually something that us as therapists have been helping people to do. So it's more of, I think sometimes when patients come to us, they are looking for somebody to fix their pain. I have this pain and I've been having it for years and years and years, and I want it to be gone. And sometimes that doesn't necessarily happen. So we help them to become as functional as they possibly can. We help them to re-engage in their preferred activities and we help them to find strategies to cope with the pain that might come from that. It is one of those diagnoses that sometimes because they have been dealing with chronic pain that there are sometimes a lot of psychosocial factors that can present as well. And almost... I pride sometimes in I am this diagnosis or I am hypermobile and people don't understand why I hurt. Nobody believes that it's real. So those are all things that I, that I've heard people say. And when that conversation comes up, this is a chronic condition. Your joints will still be hypermobile after therapy because that's the way that your body is made. And we focus on how can we make the most out of the body that you have. We can make some muscles stronger. We can teach you to do things in a different way. We can help you with rest breaks and coping and things like that. But we can't guarantee that you're never going to have pain. So I, I think that helps too, like having that open and honest conversation and really like kind of trying to empower them as best as I can to manage their condition. Yeah, Carrie, we have the same setup at the facility I'm at where a lot of our referrals for kids with hypermobility come from our pain clinic. They're being bounced around from different practitioners or they're being sent and they have this chronic pain and they're sent to to our pain clinic and they get referred to therapy or they get referred. We have a, I believe there's a 
a counselor, social worker, I can't remember exactly, but they, a lot of times, like you mentioned, there is that psychosocial component. And so getting these kids plugged in with the right resources that these kids are being validated there. And we're addressing all of their concerns, not just these hypermobile joints, but everything that comes with it. Yes. I mean, when you bring that up, I mean, one thing that we talk a lot about is, so activity pacing is huge or activity alternating. We've called it both things. And I think way back in the day, we referred to it as more energy conservation and also like hydration. So one thing about hypermobile joints and just that extra collagen that's in, that causes that hypermobility. We found that these kids really need to be drinking like more water than, than what most of them are. Like 80 ounces is kind of the minimum that they should be drinking. And most of them, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me that some of them will come in and they'll tell me that they drink like one or two glasses of water a day. And I, oh my gosh, well, no wonder your body hurts. <laughs> You're dehydrated. So, so we talk a lot about, about that sort of thing, just managing like your health and sleeping rates. So with that pain cycle, so many of them are getting really poor sleep and they're teenagers on top of it, which is famous for having poor sleep and poor sleep cycles. And so you take all of these things and, and then the stressors, the psychosocial stressors that they have in their lives. And we just try to, to break it down like one at a time. And, and I think, you know, going back to why we do the COPM, like if we can just get one thing a little bit better, that's a win. And I think that it really does help to buy in trust from them. And then we move on to the next thing. But there have been sessions. There was somebody I saw a couple of weeks ago. She was having upper extremity pain, which is why she was referred to me. But really, her biggest complaint was her fatigue. So that upper extremity pain, we weren't going to be able to touch it until we we managed her fatigue a little bit better because like, she wasn't drinking enough water. She wasn't getting good sleep she wasn't doing anything. Like she wasn't going to school on a regular basis. She wasn't, you know, really like her activity level was super, super low. So, you know, I can give her like strengthening exercises, but what is that really going to do? Big term basis. You know, part of the reason why she's having pain is because she's not doing anything and, and she's not doing anything. She's tired all the time because of all those other things. So sometimes we, they might have a goal that's not really immediately within reach and we'll have to break it down into something that's doable. You know, sometimes I've not really given a whole lot of exercises that said, let's start with here. I want you to start tracking how much water you're taking <laughs> and increase that by five ounces per week. And I want you to keep track of all of your activities. And this is, we're going to shoot for 10 minutes twice a day of you getting up and, and doing something. And, and so, but again, tying it into things that they want to do. So like, it's not just me saying, get up and exercise for 10 minutes. It's more of like, tell me about like what you like to do. Tell me about what you did before you started having all of this pain and tell me what it looks like to you. What's the first thing that you want to be able to do. And so that does help. And I am really lucky. I work with some great PTs, which just sounds like it's similar to your clinic, Kara. So we work hand in hand. And one thing that I also focus on, we see a lot of kids that have 
shoulder pain due to their hypermobility, but their posture is, is absolutely horrible. And so when I, when I look at like what their activities are, and so many of them are on a computer or online and they're spending their whole day hunched over looking at their phone on their lap. (laughs) So we talk a lot about activity modifications and those general things that we all know how to do as therapists. But I also will tell them like those core exercises that my PT friends gave you, those, I can give you a shoulder exercise, but it's not going to mean anything if you don't do the exercise from the PT, you know? So we really try to help to complement each other so that we're treating the whole child. I think you make a really good point. You said earlier, a couple things. One, just finding out what the true or not, maybe not the true, but like finding out is the fatigue causing this? You know, we get so focused, I think sometimes as therapists and say, well, these objective measures, we've got to improve them. I need to improve your range. I need to improve your strength. I need to improve whatever. But if the underlying issue here is that they can't function because they're fatigued or whatever. Sometimes we have to take a step back from those putty exercises or theraband exercises and say, Hey, let's get this under control because I think that will then ultimately help with that. So I think that's, I have to remind myself that frequently too, but I want to also go back to something you said earlier, you snuck in the phrase getting buy-in Do you find that that is hard with these kids and these parents to get buy-in because their kid is in pain, they're seeing their child's in pain, they don't want you hurting them, they've had all these people telling them they shouldn't do this, they shouldn't do that, and you're telling them, no, we should do this, we got to get you moving. How do you get buy-in? Do you get buy-in? And how do you get buy-in from these kids and their parents? That's a great question. It's definitely harder with some families than others because the ones that are more difficult, there's a lot of patients that we see that have gone from clinic to clinic and have been through bouts of therapy before that were unsuccessful. And sometimes it was because that therapist was super focused on one thing and not necessarily the whole picture. And and sometimes it's because the, the family is still searching for a bigger diagnosis. It's almost like they they don't believe that this is the reason for everything, but I will say we are, we are fairly lucky at children's. The ones that come from our physicians that come from our rheumatology physicians and come from our genetics department or pain management team, they are excellent at promoting therapy. So they, with their skill, will talk to these and say, this is what you need. This is what's going to make you better. And our therapists are wonderful and they specialize in this. And they really like elevate us to a level that I hope we deserve. <laughs> and um, so that helps. So a lot of times they are coming to us and they're kind of ready in a way. So, I mean, although I see two things, so sometimes the families are are ready, but the child's not. (laughs) And sometimes it's almost like they, they treat it like this is just another stop in the road. Like I've been referred to this person and this person, and now I'm being referred to you and nobody's been able to help me so far. So take your best shot. And those are the ones where, you know, I really do take that step back and say, well, this is why we do the COPM because I want to make sure that it's a way for me to check myself. And I tell them all that because if your listeners, I would imagine are, are familiar with the Canadian occupational performance measure. So the child has to rate 
themselves on a scale of one to 10. And, and that's something that's really hard for a lot of teenagers to do. So as we're going into it, I'll say, I know this is hard. I'm asking you to do it because when I come back and do this in a couple of months, it helps me to know if what I'm doing is helping you or not. Because if your score doesn't change, that tells me that I need to figure something else out. And that does seem to kind of help them. Like I put it almost on me, like, I don't know if this is going to work. And I tell <laughs> I tell a lot of people like therapy is not a cookbook. I wish that there was one exercise I could give you that would take care of all of your problems. But unfortunately, because every person's different, I use what I know to give you what I think might be best, but it's your job to go try it out. And then we see if it works. And if it does, we keep going in that direction. And if it doesn't, then we, then we go back to the drawing board and we figure something else out. So that conversation I think helps too. We've gone back and forth at children's with a couple of different models of care. So we most often see people with hypermobility more on a periodic basis because we don't expect to have huge changes week to week. The exception would be if they have like a specific like tendonitis or something that was, you know, caused by their underlying hypermobility, then we would see somebody a little bit more frequently. But generally, we know that the change isn't going to happen overnight and it takes a few weeks of, of doing it to really notice whether or not things are changing. The downside of that is that it really, if there is a patient that is having trouble with compliance it's really hard when they come back and you're kind of in the same spot. So recently we have been with those particular patients, especially the ones that have a lot of underlying things going on. So the, the patients that do have a, a lot of fatigue and are um, not going to school and, and having more functional limitations, we are starting to see them on a, on a more frequent basis to try out what happens if we, if we do this like more focused session of therapy, whether it be a combination of OT and PT or one or the other. And then with a goal of starting to spread it back out again to more periodic and, and really trying to push that self-management piece of like, this is your chronic condition. And our goal is to help you learn how to manage it. Yeah. We've had sort of that same model, at least with our hand therapist, because I think you're right. We aren't going to see large changes in their reports or strength or whatever that we're trying to measure this by, whether it is their subjective report or a functional patient reporting out outcomes measure or an objective measure. And I, so I think you're right in that we aren't going to see those big changes. And so if we can have these patients, Hey, I'm going to give you these things. I'm going to give you these strategies. I want you to work on these for a couple weeks, come back and see me. And I want you to tell me how has this changed anything? Has it changed anything for the better, the worse, stayed the same so that we can make modifications. And so I think we've tried to build it as a, Hey, this is a team and we all have to be players here. You, me, your parents, whoever's involved. And hopefully we're getting some buy-in from these parents and patients, but it, it's hard. I had a patient recently that was giving me 20 excuses as to why, why I can't do this in my schedule. And I can't, how do you expect me to do this when I can't even do my homework or I can't, it was just every excuse under the sun. And so we had to peel it back and say, okay, 
let's start with one thing. Can you do one thing for the next two weeks? So sometimes it it takes a few a few strategies till you find find one that works. <laughs> it does. I have had many patients similar to that, and sometimes if they really can't do it, we end up focusing more on the activity modifications. And I'll I'll say, okay, what can you do? Like, so this is where your pain is. What is your workstation set up like? Can you not do homework in your bed? Nope. Okay. Then <laughs> can you, can you, can you at least bring your computer up to eye level? <laughs> you know, it's really trying to like figure out where that that medium is. And I will say that those are the toughest ones to crack. But if they do start doing that one thing and they come back and they're like, actually, that did help. And then there's your buy-in, right? There's that like, okay, now you can tell me something else because that one thing did actually seem like it helped a little bit. So we also use the pod C as a way to try to monitor function and pain. So it's not as personal as the COPM, but it's more of a general, you know, that general questionnaire. And we sometimes will see like improvements there. And like, so they'll come back and they'll be like, well, nothing's really better. And I'm still hurting a lot. And and I'll like, kind of like compare the scores. I'll be like, well, actually, you know, you are, it is, I know it doesn't feel like it's that better because it's your body and you're still having a lot of pain, but you're actually reporting it to be a little bit better. It's not great. (laughs) We still got a, a ways to go, but it seems like maybe we're heading in the right direction. So, you know, anything I can get, <laughs> I will try to like promote more that positivity. Like this is a journey. And we, we did kind of like, I always try to prep them. I don't, you know, we don't, I don't expect you to be better the next time you come back to see me. I don't say it like that, but it's more like, a, you know, this is the first step. We want to see some change, but we know we still got a ways to go. You didn't get this way overnight and it's not going to get better overnight. Mm-hmm. Harry, what was that measure that you just had mentioned in the beginning, just after the COPM? The pod C. Yeah. It's the pediatric outcomes data collection instrument. Okay. Thank you. It's very similar to the promise. It, a lot of the orthopedic surgeons were using it a while back. And so we adopted it because our hand surgeons were using it. And first we were just using it in our orthopedic clinics. And then we began using it more so with any of our, of our upper extremity patients. So we are trying to find that just right measure <laughs> that can help to capture a function and pain. And we've been looking at the promise more lately too, because our rheumatologists have been using that. So it's great that I work in a, an institution as large as Cincinnati Children's because I've learned so much over the years, but unfortunately our physicians all use all kinds of different measures depending on what department they are in. So it is hard to be consistent, you know, just amongst ourselves when you know, you're seeing things from different different professions. Carrie, are there any times that you might suggest for these patients some adaptive equipment or potentially orthotic interventions? I know sometimes we don't want to put 
someone in an orthosis that they're going to be so dependent on and that we aren't teaching them other strategies to manage their hypermobility, but are there ever times that you find that it is beneficial for these patients and what might those instances be? Yes, actually, I am a fan of Olate splints for the PIP joint, especially in people that have hypermobile IPs and mostly because you're not going to lose strength by wearing an ovoid splint. So if anything, I I think that for a lot of patients, it gives them more stability in their hands and it can really help improve their function in a lot of ways. So there's, there's a lot of patients that we see that come in that just have generalized hand pain and then I'll feel their hands and it's almost like dough. (laughs) And I think no wonder they are probably having little micro traumas all day long, every single time they use their, their hands, especially in, in musicians. So we, we see a fairer number of, of all kinds of kids in band and kids that play guitar, piano, and, and they'll have a lot of pain and fatigue in their hands, but they want to keep playing their instruments. So I've found that ovulates really, really help a lot. Not everybody. Some people find that they are like, they get in the way. Some of the same musicians, some musicians love them and, and some really feel like they can't play as well with them on. So Again, it is one of those things that I give out and I say, this works for some people. It may may not work for you. Your job is to go try it and then come back and let me know how that goes. And I also, for some people, will recommend a a soft thumb opponent split. So when somebody has a lot of that instability at their thumb, it's just really hard. Like, you know, I will watch them do certain tasks and I just... You can see it. <laughs> like they do not have the ability to stabilize their thumb on their own. And, and depending on what that activity might be, that splint can really be helpful, I think, in, in a lot of situations. So I will recommend that one. I don't typically do it on our first visit just because it's hard to get a feel for whether I, I don't want to be a provider that just is like here try this splint out because I feel like a lot of them have had that experience in the past, whether it be for their knee or their ankle. And there is sometimes a patient that will almost want to collect them. So I also don't want to like add to like, yeah, now you need this splint because a lot of them have like tried to, they've decided on their own that they need a wrist cock up or something, or they see something in the store and they just go get one. So I, I'm cautious about the the thumb opponents, especially just because I, I don't want them to over rely. And I do want to see like, are do we have other options first before I say that this is what you need? So we do a lot of proprioceptive retraining because a lot of times they just don't know how to hold things other than the way that they've been doing it, which might be bad for their joints and it might be hyperextending their joints. So I have also given built up like cylindrical foam for certain things, you know, if they're having a hard time gripping, depending on how they're doing it. So I think what, what the nice thing about what therapists offer is that we 
can sit and watch them do an activity. And it's not just necessarily an exercise that we're going to give you and say that you just need to get stronger. It's really, you know, trying to help them learn how to do it in a different way and really breaking down that task. And it's it's a lot of problem solving, which personally I, I really enjoy. So it's one of my more favorite things that, that we come across. Outside of that, I, I don't recommend a lot of adaptive equipment. There are sometimes people that will want a wheelchair for whatever reason. And I, I really you know, strongly recommend against that for the most part. So. so once you get them to that point that you feel you've offered them everything at this point and you feel like they move forward or how do you transition to the home program or have the family become involved or do you see these kids back, you know, a year, two, three years later, or even if they need therapy as an adult, how does that, that transition or how do you kind of work that into their program? Well, the home exercise program is something that they're most often they're doing that from day one, hopefully on their own. And that's where that periodic model comes in handy. We've been helping them practice to do that this whole time and giving them the tools and the modifications and things like that. When they get to a point and when I get to a point when we, when we both can agree, like, okay, I think this might be where therapy ends. I usually will let them know know, these you know what to, you know, it's almost like kind of empowering, like, you know what to do now. You are doing such a great job managing your condition. And if you need anything right now, I usually kind of say, I think you've, you know, you don't necessarily need me anymore. You're doing awesome on your own. If something comes up down the road, because there are some, there does seem to be like a, a fairly high incidence of like, and then I didn't veins and things like that, or even just, you know, sometimes they'll sublux something and just have a hard time with that recovery. And so I will say, if ever you need me, you know where to find me and you can always come back and I'll always see you and we can get you through whatever that next step is. When they're adults, because we do see a lot of kids that are teenage and even into their college years, there's been kids that I've seen, you know, they'll come back on their college breaks and check in and and that's really helpful to them. There, I, there was one sweet patient that I had that she would come and see me every single time on her college break, but she was doing such a good job managing her condition that she really didn't need me. <laughs> so, you know, in sessions for her to finally be like, you know, I think I do understand what I'm doing and I think I am getting it. And she just kind of needed that confidence and that affirmation that, that she knew what to do. We have a couple of adult facilities, not anybody that specializes in hypermobility necessarily, but we will refer them to an adult hand therapist or an adult physical therapist, depending on what their needs are, or what the problem might be for the future. It's hard. It's hard. I'm, I'm sure, Kara, you probably have the same thing. People don't want to leave their pediatric institution. They don't want to leave their pediatric doctors. It's a very difficult thing to do. But there is also something about like walking an adult back in a pediatric facility. Like, you know, there's butterflies on the floor and there's babies crying. (laughs) So, you know, I think they do get to a point where they're like, you know what, I think I am too old for this. (laughs) So it usually comes together at the same time. (laughs) 
Yeah. So there's a lot of times that I see them. I'm in an adult clinic, as I mentioned earlier, but you know, I'm getting referrals for 16 year olds through 20, 21 year olds, and they've never been treated, you know, and this is the first time that this is coming up. So we go back and forth. Do we refer it to peds? Do we, we take in the adult clinic? You know, we've been tossing it back and forth. Some they are in peds, some are with me. So I guess it just depends, you know, on where they're going to be best served, I guess, you know, more is more the answer, but. Yeah, I think so. I mean, then how many joints are going on? You know, are they having like kind of a global <laughs> high mobility problem or is it, you know, a specific, because there are a fair number. I mean, I've seen people that are hypermobile that didn't come to me through that clinic. They came to me from the ortho clinic and it was because they have a tendonitis or because they did sublux their shoulder and I'll be like, oh gosh, I can see how that happened. (laughs) So we will, or because it's like just that generalized wrist pain patient, you know, sometimes that patient is hypermobile and, and that's the reason why they're having wrist pain. So I do think that there's definitely a place for them in an adult ham clinic, as well as in more of like a global pediatric clinic too. I, I think it's, depends on the therapist and the child and the family and, and what their needs are. And it is helpful though. Like if they're having a lot of pain elsewhere, like it is really helpful to have like a, a partner PT. <laughs> it's just, because then there are sometimes things that that'll come out in their session or that'll come out in my session. And I'll be like, Oh my gosh, did you tell that to the PT <laughs> like, and vice versa? And so it's really nice to, to have that. It's like having extra time with them without actually having extra time. (laughs) Or they get referred and I'm seeing them in a hand clinic, even as a PT. And they're like, well, yeah, but my ankle's really the problem. And they bring up that it's like, yeah, yes, I have problems with my, with my hand or I have pain in my shoulders, but really I have more pain in my knees and my ankle. So Mm -hmm. that's really, can you fix that? I'm like, yeah could address it. I don't know that you want me doing that, but I know somebody in in the gym right there that that can (laughs) got the perfect person for you. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Like same. I think we, we do, you know, as they report down to the doctor, like what, what their problems are really when you get down to that big conversation, sometimes it's not actually what they were referred to for. Oh, it does take a little bit of shifting around and and addressing what's more meaningful to them. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of touched base on everything. You know, I really appreciate the information, especially some of the other things like looking outside the box. Don't just look at the objective measures, range of motion, strength, but I like the whole, the fatigue and look at some of those other components, adaptive equipment, education. So I think you gave, you know, our listeners a pretty good place to start. Yeah, for sure. We really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. 
To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast. Podcast.